Good morning, everybody, and welcome. Really glad that you're here, and uh, you know, we're just kind of back into it again. Listen, if you are new here with First Baptist Church, let me just say we are really excited that you chose to come here. I know you could have done other things. You could have been in other churches. You could have slept in. You could have done other things, watched television. You chose to come here. I'm very thankful that you did, and, and uh, I pray that it'll be profitable for you. If you're not familiar with what we typically do here, of course, it's a church. You kind of got the hang of it, um, but we, we enjoy studying the Bible. We, we do, and today um, is no exception. We, for most of the year last year, 2014, were walking verse by verse through the book of Romans, and then around the holidays, we took a break and did some other things, and today we're jumping back in so it's Bible study again, and uh, so if you have your Bibles, you may want to start getting ready. We're starting chapter number 11. Romans chapter number 11 is where we're at, and as you're getting to Romans chapter 11, let me just give you uh, a reminder, an overview of what we've learned. I mean, the book of Romans, generally speaking, has a theme, and the theme of the book of Romans we saw is righteousness. It's God's righteousness. It primarily deals with the doctrine that arguably for us is the most important doctrine there is. It's the doctrine of salvation. And so we broke it down into, into sections of chapters, and that's how we studied it. Chapters 1 through 3, for the most part, were uh, the story of sin, where righteousness is demanded. Um, chapters 4 and 5 deal specifically with the issue of salvation and uh, justification, where righteousness is declared. Chapters 6, 7, and 8 were about sanctification or practical holiness, walking in the Spirit. We called that righteousness defended, and now we are in the section chapters 9, 10, and 11, which we're kind of referring to as sovereignty, and righteousness declined. And what we're dealing with in chapters 9, 10, and 11 is really uh, the nation of Israel, and we saw that. We're going to see that continuing on through. So we're going to start right out, and I have a couple of statements in your notes, and it connects with what the title is. Uh, of this message, but the, the first statement is this. God's plan A, if you will, for evangelizing the world was to be through the nation of Israel. Okay, the nation of Israel we have seen in the past is God's chosen nation. They were considered God's chosen people throughout the Old Testament. They certainly received blessings and privilege. They received God's word they received all these things from God in, a, in opposition to the other nations of the world, but with a purpose. And the purpose that they received these things was not just because they were better or smarter or better looking or anything. God just chose them and through them decided, I'm going to use you as the channel through which I will send my word to all of the world. And so that was God's plan, that the evangelization of the world would come through the nation of Israel. Now, obviously, by the time Jesus shows up, um, Israel blew it. They failed to do that, and uh, even to the point where the prophecies of the Old Testament are overwhelming about the coming of the Messiah, they rejected their very Messiah when he finally showed up and they had him crucified. And so that plan didn't work out so good, and so God obviously is ready uh, with another road. I mean, if you aren't going to respond to God's word, God will get it out another way. And the plan B then is to take the gospel directly to the Gentiles. 
Now, if we look back historically through church history, uh, we see this played out in the book of the Acts of the Apostles. In the book of the Acts of the Apostles, in Acts chapter 2, we have the day of Pentecost and the coming of the Holy Spirit. The church is born as a living organism with the Holy Spirit indwelling the believers in a permanent fashion. And the gospel is going out to Jewish people through Acts chapter 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and seven. In Acts chapter 7, there's the stoning of Stephen, one of the first deacons who preaches to the nation of Israel and the leaders. They rejected it. They kill him. And that's a huge turning point in the history of the early church. So that in Acts chapter 8 then, there's this great persecution and, and the believers from Jerusalem are now scattered. And they end up in Samaria, the neighboring nation, which is half Jew and half Gentile, and there's great revival going on. And then by the end of Acts chapter 8, you have um, Philip, one of the other deacons, who's sent out to meet a guy who is an, a eunuch of the country of Ethiopia. Oh, that's a Gentile. And he leads him to the Lord by the end of chapter 8. In chapter number 9, you see Saul of Tarsus. He's a Jew. He ends up getting saved in chapter 9. He becomes eventually the Apostle Paul. And he is the Apostle that is sent to take the gospel directly to the Gentiles. Um, Acts chapter 10, Peter has a vision of a sheet coming down and clean and unclean meats. A lot of you know what I'm talking about. If you don't, you could read Acts. You'll see it for yourself. At the end of the day, Peter ends up sharing the gospel with an Italian man, a Gentile by the name of Cornelius. And in chapter 11, he recounts that whole story back to the people in Jerusalem because they are just astonished by the fact that God has taken the gospel directly to the Gentiles. And they, he was no longer going through the nation of Israel because of Israel's rejection. Now, these historical facts of the beginning of the church and how that plan flipped from going through Israel to go directly to the Gentiles, of which, by the way, we are beneficiaries. Amen? These are historical facts, and they are undisputed. Okay, the only thing that is disputed, I mean, the only thing that is disputed is whether God is permanently finished with Israel or not. That's the issue. And that's the issue we're going to deal with in Romans chapter 11. That's important. The question is, is Israel still God's chosen people? And the answer to that question not only affects your theology, it affects politics. It affects the whole world, okay? It's an important issue, and Romans 11 is actually very clear, as we will see today in the next couple of weeks as we walk through these verses. Now, again, the review of Romans 9, 10, 11 briefly is that, again, specifically, God deals with, okay, so what about Israel? We're now in the church age. The gospel's going straight to the Gentiles. The majority of believers are non-Jewish origin, Okay? But yet God still has a plan. So what is it about the nation of Israel? In, Israel? in chapter number nine, we saw that Israel blew it. They rejected the Messiah, and so God rejected them. We kind of compared Romans 9, 10, and 11 kind of like GPS directions, okay? So in chapter nine, they got off track, and we saw that. In chapter number 10, it's kind of like you hone in your GPS, and you finally find the way back home and in chapter number 10 what we see is that the Jews certainly can be saved today just like anybody else but they do it the exact same way you or I do it by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ there's no difference and in chapter number 11 what we're going to see here is the ultimate return of the nation of Israel we will see before we're done not necessarily today because it goes into next week and the week after that Jewish salvation that that this body of people called Israel will indeed repent and return to Jesus Christ as their Messiah. 
So Romans chapter 11 and verse number 1, we'll read the whole thing in just a second, but if you just notice verse number 1, it says, I say then, hath God cast away his people? God forbid, for I am also an Israelite, the seed of Abraham, the tribe of Benjamin. Okay, so he starts chapter 11. I'm doing this review for you because he starts chapter 11. I say then, obviously referring back to things we would have already learned. Now, it's been a couple of months for you that come faithfully. And if you're new, you don't really know where we're at. So we're doing this review. Let me just point you back to chapter 10 so we get the context of exactly where we're hitting in Romans chapter 11. Okay, so Romans 10 and verse number 16, right? It says, but they, and the the context is Israel, they, the Israelites, have not all obeyed the gospel. Jump down to the end of that chapter, verses 19 to 21. But I say, have they not heard? Again, speaking the context is Israel. Yes, verily their sound went into all the earth and their words into the ends of the world. But I say, did not Israel know? First Moses saith, and is going to go back to some Old Testament references. I will provoke you to jealousy by them that are no people, referring to Gentiles, and by a foolish nation I will anger you. But Isaiah is very bold and saith, I was found of them that sought me not. I was made manifest unto them that asked not after me. But to Israel, he saith, all the day long I have stretched forth my hands unto a disobedient and gainsaying people. So Romans chapter 11 is written to remind us that God is not finished with the nation of Israel. He's not finished with the nation of Israel. It really is that simple. And so I gave this simple title of today's message that plan B does not nullify plan A. God had an original plan for the nation of Israel. They blew it. God goes to plan B, takes the gospel straight to the Gentiles. Thank God for that. But there is going to be a restoration of the original plan. And the restoration ultimately of the original plan will take place at a time we referred to yet future called the tribulation. It'll be beyond the church age, okay? So that is kind of a prophetic picture of where this is going today. We're not going to emphasize that quite so much, but you need to understand that. And here's what you really need to understand. Even today in the, in the world that we live in, as opportunity presents itself to you as an individual and to us as a people, to us as a nation, as the United States of America. The warning of Scripture is this. You better still be good to those Jews. You still better be good to them. And the main reason comes later in Romans chapter 11. We'll get to it at another week. Verse number 28 says, As concerning the gospel, they're enemies for your sakes. That typically, Jewish people are not receiving Jesus Christ. They have rejected their Messiah. But, as touching the election, remember... They're beloved for the Father's sakes. So this chapter will lay all that out. It's a wonderful Bible study. We should all have our bearings now. Follow with me. I'm going to read the first 11 verses. We'll pray and we'll jump into it, okay? Let's go. I say then, hath God cast away his people? God forbid. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God hath not cast away his people which he foreknew. What ye not, what the scripture saith of Elias how he maketh intercession to God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed thy prophets and digged down thine altars, and I am left alone, and they seek my life. But what saith the answer of God unto him? I have reserved to myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. Even so then, at this present time also, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it is no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. That's fairly intuitive. 
Verse number seven, what then? Israel hath not obtained that which he seeketh for, but the election hath obtained it, and the rest were blinded. According as it is written, God hath given them the spirit of slumber, eyes that they should not see, and ears that they should not hear, unto this day. And David saith, let their table be made a snare, and a trap, and a stumbling block, and a recompense unto them. Let their eyes be darkened, that they may not see, and bow down their back alway. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? God forbid. But rather, through their fall, salvation is come unto the Gentiles for to provoke them to jealousy. Okay, this is really going to make sense to us. It falls out in a very systematic way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come before your word, we just ask you to do what you promised you would do. So we ask with confidence. We ask rejoicing. We ask thanking you in advance for what you will do, and that is to take your Holy Spirit and to speak to our hearts through your Holy Word, that you would be our guide, that you would be our teacher, that you would bring to our understanding the truth that you have for our lives. And I pray that as we look at the story of Israel that was rejected and will come back, that you will give us practical, real application for our lives, that you will burn in our hearts how this can live out in my life today when I get up and walk out of this building and live my life in a, in a world full of people and situations that fail and how you will respond. Lord, we love you and we commit this time to you and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, the first point that you have in your notes is the remnant of Israel. And that's really what we're dealing with in the first six verses, the remnant of Israel. And so the question that is asked, and I'm going to add a word for clarity, and you'll see that it fits in the context. Has God permanently cast away the, the nation of Israel? And the answer is clearly no. God forbid. Now there is a temporary casting away that the gospel is going directly to the Gentiles, yes, and it is very clear. Words like stumble, words like fall, they appear in here. But the real understanding of what he's saying, has God cast away, he means has he cast them away permanently? Are they never to return? And Paul says, God forbid, no way. In fact, look, for people to come to the conclusion that God has completed his plan for Israel, they no longer are the apple of God's eye, they no longer have any future, that there's nothing to come back for them uh, as time goes on, as far as we're concerned in the 21st century. How could you miss that? That verse says, no, in fact, in the vernacular of today, forgive me, it would be like saying, heck no. I mean, no way, God forbid, right? No way. Listen, you'd have to be a politician to miss that. <laughs> you'd have to be a seminary student to miss that. I mean, how do, theolo how do you miss Romans chapter 11 and verse number one and come away thinking, oh yeah, God's done. God's done with Israel. There, there's no possible way. And Paul refers to himself as proof. He says, I'm an Israelite. I'm of the seed of Abraham. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, you have to understand the context. When he says, I'm an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin, he is talking about his physical lineage as a Jew. Uh, the, the, you never find, you can see the seed of Abraham referring to Christians in a spiritual sense. But the 12 tribes of Israel are never referred to in a spiritual manner. If you refer to the 12 tribes, it has to do with the physical lineage that comes through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob every single time. So this is physical 
national Israel. That is exactly what he's talking about. But what he's saying about himself is that, look, look at me. I am proof that God is not totally done with the Jews. Some are still getting saved. I'm one. That's what Paul's saying. And then he brings up the lesson of, it says Elias in the King James Bible. It's just a a New Testament way of referring to the person who is known as Elijah in the Old Testament. So we're going to see the lesson of Elijah. And it refers to an event in Elijah's life that comes out of 1 Kings chapter 19. But to understand it, you would have to have read 1 Kings chapter 18. And many of you will remember the story. By the way, it's one of my favorite stories in all the Bible where Elijah is is put on the spot in front of these hundreds of prophets of Baal, and they are tempting him, and Elijah's like, all right, guys, let's just have the big showdown. I mean, let's just bring it down right now. And there's a drought in the land. He'd already prayed that it wouldn't rain. It wouldn't rain. There was no water. And they're going to say, look, if Baal be God, let's all serve him. And if Jehovah be God, let's all serve him. Let's push all our chips to the middle of the table. I'm all in. We're going down on this event right here. And ultimately, he sets up a sacrifice. They set up a sacrifice for Baal. He's like, you guys go first. And you pray to Baal and see if Baal will, you know, let fire rain down from heaven, accept your sacrifice. And they pray and dance and sing and shout and do whatever they do. And they're cutting themselves. and They're doing crazy stuff. And Elijah, you know, Elijah's a stud, man. He's mocking them. He's making fun of them. He's like, hey, why don't you shout louder? He might be sleeping. I mean, he's making fun of these guys. And of course, nothing happens because Baal is nothing. And Elijah sets up his altar and he, you know, sets it all up and he, he says, hey, before we ask God to burn this thing, let's just bring just big cartons, let's just dump water all over this thing. I mean, barrels full of water, water that didn't exist much at that day. And just soak the thing full of water, just so that you don't think that it's like dry desert, spontaneous combustion. And God rains down fire and consumes that thing. And Elijah gets full of the Holy Spirit. And it's a weird story, but he slays them all with the sword, man. I mean, he's a stud. And then Ahab, the king, gets on his chariot and heads for home. He's like, I'm out of here, man. This is a bad day. Elijah girds up his loins. I love that phrase. Outruns the chariot. I mean, it's crazy. He gets home. Now, Ahab was an evil king, but his wife was even eviler. Jezebel is her name. And Ahab was probably a little nervous. Jezebel wasn't scared, man. She was a tough girl. She threatens Elijah. What? I'll have your head. Huge victory, one of the greatest victories in the Old Testament. And the old boy gets scared. He gets scared because he's threatened by a chick. (laughs) I mean, he just slaughtered hundreds of dudes. So he runs and hides in a cave. And he runs and he hides in this cave, and he's he's basically having a pity party. I mean, look, you want a practical application of that? You ever have a great victory in your life, and then one little tiny thing happens that really shouldn't even hit your radar? And all of a sudden, you're out whining and complaining and having a pity party like the world's going to cave in around you. It happens to us before we make fun of Elijah too bad. Okay, so he's in the cave, and you know, he needs to hear from God. And he's, he's basically whining and saying, Lord, Israel's useless, and nobody follows you. I'm the only guy left. Right? That's basically what he says. And, and, and here's what he says. So in verse number 14 of 1 Kings 19, it says it this way. It actually 
it's in verse 10 and in verse 14, but verse 14. And he said, I've been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. So then God reminds him that there's still other 7,000 men that have never bowed the knee to the image of Baal. It says in verse 18, Yet I am left, yet I have left me 7,000 in Israel, all the knees which have not bowed unto Baal, and every mouth which hath not kissed him. And, and that's what's referred to here in, Revel, in, excuse me, in Romans chapter 11. He's referring to this event. So what is the lesson of Elijah in the context of the remnant of Israel? Well, the lesson of Elijah in the context of the remnant of Israel is, although it seemed like all Israel had rejected God, still there was a remnant of true believers, right? That's the lesson of Elijah. So now let's come back to today. You go back to Romans 11. Now we finish those verses 2, 3, and 4. Verse number 5. Even so then, at this present time, So now we're bringing it back to the present. Now we're going to make an application for our life today. At this present time, there is also a remnant. So there was a remnant back in the days of Elijah. Guess what? There's a remnant today. Speaking about Jewish heritage people. This was something that was prophesied. This is not something that just showed up on the scene with the Apostle Paul. And so I'm going to read for you some of the verses. There's Romans chapter 9 and verse 29. This is a quote from Isaiah chapter 1 and verse number 9. And as Isaiah said before, except the Lord of Sabaoth had left us a seed. Isaiah's version of that, instead of the word seed, uses the word remnant. We had been as Sodoma and made like unto Gomorrah. Romans 9 and verse 27 quotes Isaiah 10, 21 and 22. Isaiah also crieth concerning Israel, though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, a remnant shall be saved. This is nothing new. Jeremiah 31 and verse 7, For thus saith the Lord, Sing with gladness for Jacob, and shout among the chief of the nations, Publish ye, praise ye, and say, O Lord, save thy people. What are you talking about, thy people? The remnant of Israel. Joel 2, 32, And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be delivered. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance, as the Lord hath said, and in the remnant whom the Lord shall call. So there has always been this idea existing in the mindset of the Old Testament Jew coming through that not everybody is going to be a follower. Some are going to stray, some are going to stumble, some are going to fall. But there will always be a remnant. And it talks about this remnant and it calls them according to the election of grace. The remnant according to the election of grace. Now, if you have been with this, us in this study, we have already kind of covered this ground in chapter number nine where we talked a lot about issues of calling and election and predestination and predetermination and all of these things. We covered that stuff in chapter number nine. If you are new to First Baptist, you can go to our website and you can download that stuff and listen to it. That's fine, but we'll just deal with it briefly because it's review for most of us by this point. What we learned back then is this, that Israel is the elect nation, and almost every time that the word elect is used in the Bible, not 100% of the time, but the overwhelming majority, it's always referring to Israel. Again, that is the context here as well. You need to understand that in the context and in the grammar in which it is given, this is not God sovereignly electing some people from before Genesis 1-1, 
to be eternally saved, to live with him in heaven forever and ever and ever. Before they were ever born, before there ever was anything, God elected some to go to heaven, and he elected the rest of them, sorry, tough for you, go to hell. That is in context of what I said. I wasn't cussing. Okay, so that's not what God is teaching here. That's not what's going on. You need to understand, anytime you see the word elect show up in the Bible, okay, or election or some form of it, you really need to ask the question that I put in your notes. Who's electing whom? You really should ask that question. And look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse number 4. I love this. It says, knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. Now, you know what I like about that verse? 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse number 4 is written in such a way that grammatically, you can say, beloved brethren, know this, be, be sure of your election of God. Brethren, you all elected God. You could say that in the grammar. You could also say in the grammar that God elected you. It kind of leaves it open, doesn't it? So why would we jump up and down and say it's only one and not the other? That's an important distinction. Listen, salvation is offered to all as a free gift. And that's really the discussion that continues on. If you look when it says in verse, uh, it's, it's the election of grace. The word grace literally means gift. It is gifted to you. And then the very next verse says, well, look, if it's of grace, it can't be of works. Otherwise, grace doesn't mean what grace is supposed to mean, which is free. And it's of works. It can't be of grace because works, by definition of what works is supposed to mean, means you earned it. So either you bought it or it was given to you. Which one is it? It can't be both. They're polar opposites. It's like light and darkness. What is darkness? Well, it's only... It's, it's whatever's left over when you turn off the light. It's like vision and blindness. What is blindness? Well, that's what's left over when you can't see anymore. I mean, that's kind of grace and works. That's kind of what it's go, that's what's going on. And he says there's an election of grace. Do, do you know just by reading that verse that that means automatically that before Genesis 1-1, God elected you to be saved, and whether you wanted to or not, you have to be, and the other people not to be saved, and whether they wanted to or not, they can't be? No. It's just a word. Elect. Somebody elected something. Okay? So just keep that in mind as we go forward. Okay. Look also at verse number five. Even so then, even so, this, this remnant that it's referred to in verse number five, this remnant according to the election of grace, he is connecting it with the story of Elijah. And so even so associates the word remnant with the 7,000 men in verse number four that are reserved to myself. Okay, so the reserved to myself of verse number four equates to the remnant of verse number five. Do you see that? And God is giving us a parallel. He's giving us this comparison. So you would ask the question then, if I want to understand this election in verse number five, I must needs therefore understand the, the, those reserved in verse number four. Why were they reserved to God in verse number four where it's made very clear? Because they never bowed the knee to the image of Baal. Do you see that? I mean, God reserved them unto himself because of their righteous response to him and his word. So here's a summary, simple summary. Israel is a nation 
as a nation, of, a political nation of people, is no longer privileged spiritually as God's people. Yet they also are not totally or permanently cast away from God. Some Jews still get saved, of course, although they are a minority population in the greater body of Christ. And there is a whole movement of theology that is gaining popularity these days, and they call it replacement theology, where the church permanently replaces the nation of Israel, and that goes into the prophetic future even. And, and they try and sell, it is not a biblical thing. It may be popular, but it's wrong. See, for example, Miley Cyrus. Okay, so some things are popular, and yet they're very wrong. Okay, number two. Elected or rejected? That's the next one. Elected or rejected? And it has another question. Well, what then? And he gives the answer right away, and he says, basically, only a portion of the national Israelites obtain what they're seeking for. Okay, well, what exactly is it that they are seeking after? (laughs) Well, the answer is clear from the Scripture. It's righteousness. What they're seeking after is righteousness. Romans chapter 9, 31 to 33. But Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, hath not attained unto the law of righteousness. Wherefore? Because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone, as is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, that whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. Again, we're going to see these themes come up again and again, right? So we understand Israel, we understand righteousness, we understand that they stumble and fall. Why? Because they didn't have faith. It's just that simple. Romans 10, verses 3 and 4. For they, again Israel, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that does what? That believeth. Romans 4 and verse number 5. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. So you have to ask the question. These are elected based on what? Okay, verse number 7 says, What then? Israel hath not obtained what it seeks for, but the election hath obtained it, and the rest were blinded. So this election, we talked a little bit about it a little bit before, but understand this. You got it. I'm going to say it a few times so it'll soak in. They were elect as a nation, as as a as an entity, as as a physical political nation. But what they're what Paul's saying here in the New Testament is that election as a nation, that's not enough. It's not enough. It's not enough that. Your mom and your daddy, you know, are Jews and live in Jerusalem, and you were born in Jerusalem Hospital or whatever, and, okay, I got the birth certificate, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to heaven now. No, it's not enough to have just that. What you need is what's referred to in verse 5, this thing called the election of grace. And that would simply be that you finally achieve, you attain God's righteousness. How? Well, the way it says it over and over and over again, by grace through faith, in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's just that simple. Romans chapter 5 and verse 17. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, referring to Adam, much more they which receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. So righteousness comes as a, the abundance of grace 
okay, when you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Romans 4 and verse 16, Therefore it is of faith that it might be by grace to the end the promise might be sure to all the seed, not to that only which is of the law, but to that also which is of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. So very simply, the remnant obtained salvation because they believed on Jesus Christ. That's it. It's just that simple. And there's no need to try and rest the scriptures and twist it and make it say something it does not say. It says very clearly what it says, and that's all we need to understand. When we were back in Romans chapter 9, I presented this concept, and I used these terms. Believing Israel as a subset within the greater body of national Israel. Okay, so look at Romans chapter 9, verses 6, 7, and 8. And this is how this is described. There is a subset within the body of, of national Israel, a group that is this remnant, a group that actually believe God's word. But not everybody, but these guys do. Romans 9, 6, 7, and 8. Not as though the word of God hath taken none effect. For they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. What? <laughs> they are not all now let me use the qualifiers to give you context. Believing Israel, which are of national Israel. That's exactly what he's saying. Neither because they are the seed of Abraham, physically speaking, are they all children. But in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are the children of the flesh. These are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. So here's how it works. The remnant elected to believe on Jesus Christ. And therefore God elected them as his spiritual children. And they did find the righteousness they sought after. Isn't that simple? That's just that simple. Why complicate it? So this remnant, as they are called, they are the remnant because they are the believers. They are believing Israel within the bigger group of national Israel. And they were elected by God because they themselves chose to elect God as their personal Lord and Savior. It's just that easy. You have a free will. You can choose. And the Bible is very clear about that throughout. So that is the basis for the election. You elect God. He elects you right back. How about that? It's just that easy. Rejected based on what? Okay, so now it says the election, right? You look at that thing and it says the election hath obtained it. But the rest were blinded. The rest were blinded. So you have this remnant called the election. And then you've got the other guys that are rejected. And they're just called the rest. <laughs> so within this body of national Israel, you've got two groups. You've got the believing and the non-believing. You have the elect and you have the rest. And that's exactly all they're saying. They're the rejectors. So, here's the sentence. The rest did not believe on Jesus Christ by grace through faith alone. Therefore, they did not find the righteousness they sought after. Isn't that simple? Because today, Jews are no different than you or me or anybody else. We all come to God the same way. Either we come on his terms and his way, or we don't come at all. And his terms and his way are defined for us in chapter number 10. Whosoever call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Right? So that is what is required. Verse number 8 in Romans 11 quotes Isaiah 29 
and verse number 10. For the Lord hath poured out upon you the spirit of deep sleep and hath closed your eyes. The prophets and your rulers, the seers, hath he covered. Now notice that. Verse number 10. The Lord hath poured upon you the spirit of deep sleep and hath closed your eyes. Colon. Okay, I know you just love the English lessons. You remember language arts back in school? I mean, it was just fun. Wasn't it fun? Okay, what, when there's a colon in the sentence, what comes after is clarification of what was before. Okay, we're good? Okay, so this closing of Israel's eyes is further defined as or further expounded on as the prophet's the rulers, and the seers. Israel's eyes in Isaiah 29 are their prophets, their rulers, and their seers. So what does that mean for the Jew today? It means that after the apostles, okay, after this rejection, Israel has no more prophets until the tribulation. There's no more men that stand as the prophets and the seers and the rulers spiritually of the nation of Israel throughout the entire church age. They show up again in Revelation chapter 7. They show up in Revelation chapter 11. This is the time of the tribulation. This is time yet future. So they have, they have no more eyes according to the biblical comparison and quote from which it is taken. Isaiah 29 verse, 11, uh, verse 10. Okay, go to verse 11. And the vision of all is become unto you as, here's a picture, the words of a book that is sealed, which men deliver to one that is learned, saying, read this, I pray thee, and he saith, I cannot, for it's sealed. So Israel has two problems. They can't hear from their leaders, and they can't see from the scriptures. Jesus said it was coming. I mean, it was already in effect, at some level, obviously at the time of Christ, they ultimately rejected him. Matthew 15, 14 says, Let them alone. They be blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind lead the blind, both shall fall into the ditch. And that's what they had. They had rejected the light that they had, and so they're walking around like blind men, and they're trying to lead others, but none of them know where they're going. John chapter 9, and verse 39, And Jesus said, For judgment I am come into this world, that they which see not might see. That's referring to Gentiles, people who did not previously have the advantage of the prophets and the seers and the rulers. I've come so that they can actually see. And they which see might be made blind because they're trusting in the wrong thing. It deals with the real hard issue. It deals with the issue of pride. So generally speaking today, the Jews are not receiving the gospel that they might be saved. Listen, I thought about doing it. We just don't have time. The, the, the current modern-day rabbinical teachings of Old Testament prophecies of the coming of Jesus Christ, th- their teachings are so far out that you would be shocked. The way that they interpret the Messianic Psalms, the way that they interpret Isaiah 53, the way that they interpret key passages of the scriptures of the Old Testament that talk about the coming of the Messiah fulfilled completely in the life of Jesus Christ are so far gone 
you'd have to say, you guys got to be blind. Well, that's exactly the point. That's exactly the point. Verses 9 and 10 back in Romans quote Psalm 69, 22 and 23. In the Psalms it says this, Let their table become a snare before them, and that which should have been for their welfare, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened that they see not, and make their loins continually to shake. If you went up and read the verses prior to verses 22 and 23, it is a prophetic psalm of the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and leading up to his crucifixion, and it is Israel's rejection of him as such. So this table, the table of the Lord, okay, is usually a blessing. It's a place of nourishment. It's a place of fellowship. It's the table of the Lord, but now it becomes a snare. Now it becomes a trap. So what God is doing is he's taking something that should have been for their benefit and he uses it against them. I'm going to say that again. He takes something that should have been for their benefit and because of their attitude, he uses it against them. Okay, I'm going to illustrate that for you and, and I, I just put in your notes, the Bible's a dangerous book. I want you to understand, this obviously is much more than just a book. <laughs> a friend of mine once, many, many years ago, I was saved in college, and he made a statement. I've always remembered it. I like it. He, he would say, the Bible is the biggest stadium anybody could ever play in. I mean, this book is amazing. And Hebrews 4, 12, and 13 are among a lot of verses that just tell us some things that we need to understand. The Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, joints in the marrow. Notice it's a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Now, for, for you guys in school, when it says intense, we're not saying where army guys live. That's different. Okay, intense is something else. Okay. Okay, so it's the, it, it discerns your thoughts and even the intention behind your thoughts. The Word of God is alive. The Word of God is sharper, and it uses this phrase, two-edged sword. That means that it cuts both ways. That means that it can convict you of sin, which brings you to salvation, which is awesome, or to blind you and to damn your soul. And you know what the Bible tells us in other places we're going to look at in a second? It all depends on your attitude on how you approach God's word. Are you full of sin such that you can't hear it? Are you cocky and arrogant and think you're smarter than God and everybody else that is dumb enough to go to church? Are you one of those guys who's proud and puffed up with your own vain thoughts and imaginations such that you can mock God and his word and think you can march out of here and do whatever you want? God will give you just enough rope to hang yourself. You need to understand that you can dig into the Bible and find a justification for anything you want. If that's what you want, it's a dangerous book. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 10 to 12. You've got to see this. The context is the coming of the Antichrist. It points to a time future. The church is raptured out, and there will be the people that are the rest, the leftovers, okay, that didn't get saved. And this Antichrist is going to come, and it says in verse 10, and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, the rest. Why? Because they received not the love of the truth that they might be saved. 
And for this cause, what cause? That they received not the love of the truth when they had the chance. For this cause, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie. That they all might be damned who had their chance but blew it. That they all might be damned who believed not the truth back when they had a chance, but chose rather to have their pleasure in unrighteousness. So there's coming a day, and people ask the question, well, when the rapture of the church comes, you know, I've, I have family. I, I have my, in my extended family a, a, a man who has made this argument to me. Jeff, I see what you're saying. I see the gospel. I see that you are not making it up. You're quoting the Bible. I also understand that there's this rapture thing, and if you get out on that, it's like on a jet plane, and if you, don't, if you miss the rapture, you've got to go through the tribulation, and that's going to be an awful rocky road. But, you know, I'm just not so sure about all this. You know, he wouldn't have said it this way. I'm having pleasure in my unrighteousness. So, you know what, I'm just going to wait and see if you disappear. And the day you disappear, I'll go ahead and start believing it. Have you ever met anybody like that? There's people that think that. The sad truth is, the 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 says, yeah, dude, you had the chance to repent and believe by faith. And you said, no thanks. And God will make sure, anybody in that category I just described, God will make sure that person can't get saved anymore. They had their chance to believe, but they chose rather pleasure and unrighteousness. You know what that means to you and me today? If you're here today and you're not 100% sure that you already have received full forgiveness of sins in the Lord Jesus Christ, and, and, and I'll offer the opportunity to, to make, make that right before we're done in a few minutes. But if you just say, eh, I don't think about it for a while, that's fine. Think about it all you want. But just know this. If God forbid something terrible happened and you say, I'm just going to think about it, and then go out and get hit by a truck and die, well, you had your chance. And it's too late now. So this is a serious deal. This is a two-edged sword. This is an important thing. Now, listen, i got to show you Ezekiel 14, and we won't study it. I'm just going to read it because, listen, in your Bible, you have to mark Ezekiel 14. You have to see what God is trying to say because this describes for us better than anywhere else this attitude that God has that is so serious, it ought to give you chills when you consider what he's got to reveal to us in Ezekiel chapter 14, start in verse 3. It is self-explanatory. I'm going to read to verse 11. Son of man, these men have set up their idols in their heart and put the stumbling block of their iniquity before their face. Should I be inquired at all by them? Therefore, speak unto them and say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Every man of the house of Israel that setteth up his idols in his heart and putteth the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face and cometh to the prophet, I, the Lord, will answer him that cometh according to the multitude of his idols, that I may take the house of Israel in their own heart because they are all estranged from me through their idols. Therefore, say unto the house of Israel, Thus saith the Lord God, Repent now, and turn yourselves from your idols, and turn away your faces from all your abominations. For every one of the house of Israel, or of the stranger that sojourneth in Israel, which separateth himself from me, and setteth up his idols in his heart, and putteth the stumbling block of his iniquity 
before his faith and face and cometh to a prophet to inquire of him concerning me? I, the Lord, will answer him by myself, and I will set my face against that man, and I will make him a sign and a proverb, and I will cut him off from the midst of my people, and ye shall know that I am the Lord. And if the prophet be deceived when he hath spoken a thing, I, the Lord, have deceived that prophet, and I will stretch out my hand upon him and will destroy him from the midst of my people Israel, and they shall bear the punishment of their iniquity." The punishment of the prophet shall be even as the punishment of him that seeketh unto him. That the house of Israel may go no more astray from me, neither be polluted any more with all their transgressions, but that they may be my people, and I may be their God, saith the Lord God. Do you get that? That means religious, Bible college graduate, pastor, teacher, I don't care who you are, regular Christian, whoever, scoffer, it doesn't matter. You come to this book with anything short of pure motives. You come to this book looking for an excuse for whatever your favorite sin is. And then you find you a verse. And you say, God showed me. You know what the real answer is? Yes, he did. And he's going to let you suffer in the midst of the consequence. You're like, but Lord, you showed me. Yeah, and I answered you according to the pre-existing idols that you already had before you came to me. Do you get that? Romans 11. The table was supposed to be a blessing. He made it a snare. That's what he's saying. That's serious business. I mean, listen. You come to church, the preacher says, you ought to come to church. You ought to. Because this is serious business. Okay, simple summary, point number two. God elects everyone who elects him. God rejects everyone who rejects him. It's easy, isn't it? It's just that simple. Okay, point number three will not take long, I promise. It is this, good out of bad. Verse number 11. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Again, the context is permanently. God forbid. But rather, okay, we're going to turn it a little bit. Through their fall, salvation has come unto the Gentiles for to provoke them to jealousy. Okay, so the question deals with the permanent nature of Israel's fall from God. And he says, no, 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 no. But rather, there's some very good things that are going to come of it. Even come out of their very bad choices. Okay, so here's how it goes. First off, Israel as a whole rejects Jesus as their Messiah, right? And they stumble. They, you could use the phrase, fall from grace. Galatians 5 talks about falling from grace. Falling from grace simply means when you seek to justify yourself through the works of the law, you fall for, because law and grace, are, they're the opposite. Works, they're the opposite, right? So you've fallen from the principle of grace. The Jews did that by trying to seek righteousness by the law. Okay, that's bad. Bad thing. Shouldn't have done that. Blew that one. Okay, but as a result, what happened? Because of their rejection, God brings the gospel directly to the Gentiles. Woo! Gentiles say woo. Woo! All right, there's a bunch of us. Okay, number three, save Gentiles now. Save Gentiles now. What do we do? We bring the the gospel back to the Jews worldwide, whether that's intentional missions or whether that's just you in your workplace and you work with a guy who happens to be of Jewish heritage and you share the gospel with him. We bring the gospel back to the Jews, and some of them get saved and become a part of, of the church age remnant. Woohoo! All right, all right. Okay, the Gentiles now, finding God's righteousness, 
provokes the Jews as a greater people group to jealousy, which will ultimately in the tribulation cause them to say, I can't believe, listen, the the hatred between Jews and Gentiles historically is off the charts. And they're like, man, those dogs got God's righteousness and we didn't get it. And they're provoked to jealousy so that eventually, as we'll see before we're done with Romans 11, all Israel shall be saved. And we'll see what that means when that time comes. And that is very, very good. One last time. Woo! Okay, awesome. Three great things happen out of a very bad thing. So let's wrap it up with this. Have bad things happened to you? Do you realize that God can use them for good? Remember Romans 8, 28? Lots of people's favorite verse. Because when bad things happen, God can still, that doesn't make the bad thing, the bad thing is not a good thing, it's a bad thing. But he can use it for good. If you'll respond right. If you'll humble yourself. If you'll accept whatever blame or guilt you deserve. If you'll repent and ask God to forgive you. If you get right with him and get back on track. It becomes very good. How many times have you ever met people, I have, that have gone through a real tragedy in life? It was very difficult. But through that tragedy came to know the Lord. And they would look back and say, of course, the tragedy was very difficult, but wow, I'm so thankful. Because if it weren't for the tragedy, I wouldn't have been low enough to finally look up. And God uses it. And that's an important thing. So maybe you need to do that today. Before you harden your heart too much and it becomes too late. Because, y'all, listen, rejecting God is serious business and there are consequences. But here's the good news as long as you're still breathing, it's not too late. It's not too late. Think about it. God's original historical plan A. Adam, perfect, garden, no sin, son of God, live forever, awesome. And he blew it. So God sends his only begotten son, the son of God, to open the way to restore fellowship with man. So that doesn't nullify the original plan that all the children of the earth be sons of God. Now, through faith in Jesus Christ, we can get back to Adam's original state, can't we? We can get back to having the very image and likeness of God, and we can live forever in peace and joy as sons of God. Plan B doesn't nullify plan A. God's just going to use it. And so you can regain your position as a son of God by grace through faith in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you haven't done that, Why would you wait? Let's just do that now. Let's all pray together.